The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it is of course the Sunday before Christmas and can't think of a better way for us to spend this morning together than looking at the actual birth of Jesus Christ. This is a monumental morning. This was obviously a monumental event. And so this morning, we want to be reminded again, very simply and yet very profoundly, of what took place in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. If you were here last week, you remember that we looked at the first 17 verses of Matthew, the genealogy. We had a wonderful time looking at that long list of verses, or names rather, and uh, just drew out some wonderful principles there. We saw how God made sure that Jesus Christ was in the Davidic line both ways through Joseph and Mary. He was in the royal line, of course, through Joseph, and he was in the physical line through Mary. So we saw last week that Jesus is, of course, fully qualified to take the throne of David. He is perfectly qualified. He has all the royal credentials to take David's throne. And we saw last week as well in this genealogy some marvelous evidences of God's grace in including some people in this. We saw Abraham, of course, included in this genealogy, and we know what his life was like. He was not a perfect man, and yet God used him in the genealogy. We looked at David, of course, who was not a perfect man, was an adulterer, and was a murderer, and was really not a great father, and yet here he is included in this genealogy of Christ. We also saw some prostitutes, Tamar being one of them, and Rahab being another one. We saw as well this inclusion of Mary, a very godly but humble, simple young woman but a sinner. All evidences of the fact that God brought Jesus Christ in a line of sinners to rescue sinners. So having done that, having substantiated the fact that Jesus Christ has all the royal credentials to be the rightful uh, king in David's line, Jesus now is presented in his birth. And Matthew, in verses 18 to 25, comes and shows us this marvelous event that took place in the arrival of Jesus Christ. This is, of course, a miraculous birth. It is a virgin birth. It is a a birth that took place against all laws of nature. And obviously, we understand and know that Mary conceived Christ by God. This is obviously a critical part of the Christmas story. This is essential to the gospel. The, The virgin birth is absolutely critical to a right understanding of the gospel. And let me just share before we begin here this morning some of the important reasons why this virgin birth is so critical. First of all, it proves the existence of the God-man. In other words, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin proves the fact that God entered our realm. That he came, he, he left his heavenly abode and he came and lived among us by taking on human flesh And only a virgin birth can secure the reality of the God-man being with us. 
There's a second reason why this is so critical as well, and that is that it proves and ensures the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. If Christ came to us any other way, if he entered our world by the normal means of conception and birth, then he could not be our savior because the sin nature that passed on from us to our progeny in Adam's line would have been passed on to Christ as well. And so there's no way that Christ could have been our savior because he himself would have been partaker of this sin nature. So the virgin birth guarantees that Christ is exempt from imputed sin. Added to this is the fact that it provides a supernatural evidence of Christ's uniqueness, that no other person has entered this world in this way through a virgin birth. And all of that shouts the fact that this is a unique person. And so all of this is bound up in the virgin birth, and all of it shows just how critical our understanding of the virgin birth is and why it's so central to the gospel. This is the point of Christmas, God entering our world. You are probably well aware of the fact, though, that many liberals reject this whole concept. Many, even today, who have bought the liberal lie have rejected all things supernatural. They reject miracles. They reject the resurrection. Uh, They reject all evidences of God working in a supernatural way, including the virgin birth. They, They say that this could not have happened, and the reason they say that is because they can't explain it rationally. Well, guess what? There is no rational explanation for the virgin birth. There is no scientific explanation for that which is miraculous. And so... Science has no explanation for the virgin birth, but we believe it by faith because the Word of God tells us it, and it is the linchpin of the gospel. In other words, this is absolutely essential for us to understand that Christ was born of a virgin because he had to be born of a woman to be in the line of humanity so he could rescue humanity, so he could take on human flesh and save us, but he also had to be God to prove that he was fully divine and possessed all the divine attributes in order that he could be sinless. All of that is bound up in the virgin birth. He is 100% man and 100% God. And so it's no accident that as Matthew moves from the genealogy, the very next place he goes, of course, is to hear the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus being both divine and human, there is no gospel. This is the foundation of all theology. This is the the central feature, in a sense, of all foundational doctrine that we hold to as believers. This is where it starts. And if this is not reality, if this falls apart, if this is not true, then everything else we believe about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, all of that falls apart if there is no virgin birth. I like how one writer says, he says, the essence and power of the gospel is that God became a man and that by being both holy God and holy man, he was able to reconcile men to God. Jesus' virgin birth, his substitutionary atoning death, resurrection, ascension, and return are all integral aspects of his deity. 
They stand or fall together. If any of these teachings, all clearly taught in the New Testament, are rejected, then the entire gospel is rejected. It starts here. It starts with a clear and accurate understanding of how Christ entered our world through a virgin. You can see it hinted at up in verse 16. We'll get to verse 18 in just a moment. But look at verse 16. We have been, last week, looking at there was a pattern in the genealogy. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so. A was the father of B. This person was the father of this person. That's the pattern. I believe 39 times was the father of occurs in the genealogy until you get to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Matthew breaks the pattern. He doesn't say Joseph was the father of Jesus because Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Joseph was the adopted father of Jesus, and Jesus was born of Mary. And interestingly, there's no reference to the father, his father, in that verse. And so now we have the question behind us who is his father? So Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, answer that question. This is Matthew's account. This is Matthew's commentary. This is Matthew's explanation. This is his elaboration on verse 16. Let me read verses 18 to 25. You know it well. There's nothing new here this morning, but I invite you just to let the words of Scripture refresh and remind your heart once again. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Interesting, if you were to compare Matthew's account of the birth of Christ to Luke's account of the birth of Christ, you would find that they're very different. Uh, Luke's account is very long. It's two chapters. If you go to Luke 1 and 2, you read through those chapters, you can see that Luke gives us a, a bunch more details on the birth of Christ than Matthew does, and we believe that is because Luke, tradition says, received his information from Mary herself. So it would make sense that Luke has a lot more to work with because he interviewed Mary. He got his information from Mary, and so he had much more to write with. But not Matthew. He couldn't interview Joseph. Joseph seems to pass off the scene fairly quickly once you get into the gospel narratives. In fact, by the time we're at the cross, Joseph is nowhere to be seen. It's just Mary. So Matthew's account is considerably shorter than Luke's account, and yet despite its brevity, Matthew's account of the birth of Christ is absolutely glorious in its simplicity. 
And we want to look at this this morning from Joseph's perspective. Luke's account is from, of course, Mary's perspective. The Matthew account of Christ's birth is from Joseph's perspective. And I want to give you this morning five key issues in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That'll be our outline. It'll come right from the text. We're going to look at five key issues in the birth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So first, number one is the embarrassing circumstances of Mary. The embarrassing circumstances of Mary, they really shouldn't have been for all that was taking place there. But for those who were on the outside, those who didn't know, these were, this was an embarrassing situation. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew tells us that they were betrothed. And I think it's easy for us to automatically just assume that that's the same thing as engagement. And that's really not the case at all. So let me give you just a little background here on Jewish marriages and what you need to kind of have in your back of your mind is an understanding so you can comprehend what is going on here. We're familiar with an engagement. An engagement is what happens when someone proposes, a man proposes to a woman and she says yes and they're engaged and they are committed to marry each other, but that, that can be easily broken off. There's no firm commitment there until the marriage ceremony actually takes place. And that's not the case in the Jewish wedding marriage custom, in that day, to be betrothed was essentially to be married. There were two stages in the Jewish marriage ceremony. The first one is called Kedushin, and that's the betrothal period. The second one is called Hupa, and that's the actual marriage ceremony itself. So let me explain both of those. First of all, the betrothal period began when the two families of the couple getting married agreed to let their children get married. And so there was an agreement, there was a contract, there was a dowry that was paid, all the details were worked out, the bride's family got from the groom's family some sort of down payment or dowry that this was going to take place. And so at the, that moment, there was essentially a legal marriage. It was contractual. It was binding. It was not like our engagement. An engagement can be broken off, but not a betrothal. A betrothal is binding. It is legal. It is essentially something that could then have only been broken by death or divorce. In fact, they even began to call each other husband and wife at that moment. But here's what's interesting. They didn't live together. They, they remained apart for up to a year. This was the length of the betrothal period. They, they, they stayed apart. In fact, they had very little contact with each other, which kind of sounds strange to our mind. You're, in, you're practically married, but you're not living together as husband and wife, but that was the situation. It was a testing period. It was a period to, to prove their fidelity, particularly in the case of the woman, to Purdue, uh, prove that she was faithful, that she would abide by her vows and her commitment to stay morally pure. And if she was found to be with child in the midst of that betrothal period, then she was likely found to be an adulteress. And so if that were the situation... If infidelity at that stage occurred, adultery was then a sin punishable by death. 
You may remember what the Old Testament says about this. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. You say, well, that seems kind of unfair to the woman. But listen. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. This was Old Testament law. If a woman is found to be with child during the betrothal period, and it became known, she was then to be stoned. This was serious. In that case, the marriage would be annulled by death. But after that one-year waiting period, if, if the, she was found to be pure, then they were to take the ceremony to the next step, to the actual commitment part of the ceremony, where they would actually have the, the marriage itself. The, the, the groom would go to grab his bride and take her back to his house where they could begin their marriage, and they would consummate their marriage that night, and that would formally constitute the marriage ceremony. Turn over to Matthew 25. Let me show you an example of this. You're familiar with this, although you may not understand that this is the second part of the marriage ceremony. Matthew chapter 25 actually describes for us that event when the the groom would go to secure his wife, to bring her home to his home. The parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 actually describes the second phase of that marriage ceremony. Matthew 25, starting in verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, you see, the bridegroom, they don't always know when he's coming, At midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent said, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. That's the ceremony. Go back to Matthew chapter 1, because... Joseph and Mary are not there yet. They're still in that betrothal period. They're in that one-year waiting time testing their fidelity. They're, They're not arrived yet at the actual marriage ceremony. And so they're in this betrothal period. And verse 18 of Matthew 1 says that it was at that time that Mary was found to be with child. It's a scandal. You didn't know what was going on. This was scandalous. This this could have been horrific for them. This would have been a disgraceful, shameful situation. And you could only conclude the obvious that Mary must have been unfaithful. Except for the last phrase in verse 18. She was with child by the Holy Spirit. She was with child by the Holy Spirit. She was chaste. She was pure. She was faithful. She kept her marriage vows. 
And it was God in his infinite wisdom and his supernatural ability who brought about a conception without a man. As I said, this was no natural conception. This was a supernatural conception. God had placed the child within her. And by the way, Mary knew this was coming. Because Dale read it at the beginning of the service. Luke chapter 1. Let me just read a portion of it again. The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And you have to wonder how. How in the world is this going to happen? This was the question in her mind. And so she says to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Father of this baby is God himself. The Holy Spirit brought this about, overshadowing her, bringing about through his creative power and his creative activity this new life in her womb, which would be the Son of God. There is no rational explanation for this. There's no scientific explanation By the way, we have to assume that the readers of Matthew's letter would have at this moment understood and thought about the Old Testament descriptions of the creative power of the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Remember what it says? The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Spirit was the one energizing creation. He has the power and the authority to create. And not only that, the Old Testament frequently spoke of the Holy Spirit as the one who gives life. You thought about this? It is by the Spirit that we have life. Psalm 104 verse 30 says, you send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the ground. Or how about the valley of the dry bones, that vision in Ezekiel 37? You remember that where all the bones come together and all the sinews are put together and people take that verse massively out of context. It's about the nation of Israel being reassembled at the end times. And Ezekiel 37 verse 14 says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. This is what the Spirit does. He produces life. He's regenerative in His power. He he brings about new life. He's creative. He's powerful. He brings about life. And not only this, the Old Testament spoke of the fact that the Holy Spirit would be frequently associated with the ministry of the Messiah. Listen to Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. 
the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Old Testament made it very clear that the Holy Spirit would be very closely associated with the ministry of Messiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I have uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So it's really not that hard to contemplate how the Holy Spirit or why the Holy Spirit is involved here. He's creative. He's the energy behind creation. He brings life and he's closely associated with the Messiah. So when it says here in verse 18 that she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, we have a guarantee here of the virgin birth. We have a guarantee that Christ will be born both of a woman to secure his humanity and he will be born of God to secure his deity. God and man together in one person. One person, two natures. Well, she's pregnant. These are the embarrassing circumstances of Mary. Number two is the secret plan of Joseph. The secret plan of Joseph, and you know what he thought. Verse 19 tells us exactly what he thought. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Just for a moment, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. The woman you're essentially married to is pregnant. Not by you. And all that he could think of was quite naturally what anyone would assume, that, that she was unfaithful to him. And, and you have to just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. He had to have been heartbroken. He loved her. He must have agonized about the proper thing to do in this situation because he had a double problem. He couldn't marry her. He couldn't marry her because he's not the father of the child. And he couldn't marry her knowing that she had been unfaithful to him and broken his, their betrothal vows. There's no way he could enter into to that marriage knowing all that was there. That was one problem. On the other hand, the other problem was he was a godly man. And the last thing he wanted to do for this woman whom he still loved was to expose her to all of the ridicule, mockery, humiliation that would come when word got out. He could have taken her to the authorities. He could have gone to the Jewish leaders and said she was unfaithful. The law says this. He could have had her stoned. Now, we're not quite sure that law was still practiced at this time in Jewish history. It's more likely by this time that they had replaced a divorce with the actual stoning decree, but you get the point. He could have enforced the full weight of the law upon her, and yet he didn't want to expose her to public scandal. He didn't want to humiliate her or shame her or make a public example of her. This is a testament to Joseph's character. He was a godly man. Think about it. He's 16. 
have the forethought and the wherewithal and the integrity and the character and the godliness at age 16 to think this way, it's phenomenal. I don't know too many 16-year-olds who today would think this way. By the way, did you notice that there's no evidence here that Joseph is angry or bitter or resentful? Wouldn't you be? He was actually more concerned for Mary's shame than his own shame. And so verse 19, he's decided to send her away secretly to divorce her. He didn't know what Mary knew. He didn't have the conversation with the angel Gabriel that Mary had. Remember, they're living apart. They're not living together. Uh, they're apart for a year. Mary had the angel Gabriel visit her, not, not Joseph. Joseph didn't have this word yet. He didn't know about this yet. And so he decides to divorce her, to keep her from public shame. He thought it was the most honorable thing he could do at this moment. And that all changes in verse 20. Number three is the surprising announcement of the angel. So the embarrassing circumstances of Mary, number two, the secret plan of Joseph, number three is the embarrassing, or I'm sorry, the surprising announcement of the angel. Look at verse 20 and 21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wow. Talk about a turn of events. Incredible. Joseph had a plan. God had another plan. And Joseph is just told what that plan is. He gets a visit by an angel of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say the angel of the Lord. Many believe that the phrase the angel of the Lord, particularly in the Old Testament, was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's very possible. But notice, it's an angel of the Lord. Why not the angel of the Lord? Because he's been conceived in Mary. He's a little preoccupied. <laughs> this is an angel of the Lord. We don't know who it is, maybe Gabriel, shows up and speaks to Joseph. <coughs> now, I think it's easy for us just to skip over this and say, yeah, an angel showed up and talked to him. Do you realize how significant this was? Do you realize that it's been 500 years since an angel came and spoke to anybody? Zechariah, around the year 500 BC, was the last person to get a visit from an angel. It's been five centuries since an angel showed up and said anything to anybody on behalf of God as his messenger. This was not a, a normal occurrence at this time. 
It happened in the Old Testament, to be sure, but it's been half of a thousand years since this last took place. Not only that, it's been 400 years since God spoke through a prophet. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Written 420 to 430 B.C. It's been 400 years since God has said anything to anybody publicly. Heaven has been silent for four centuries. And when Malachi laid down his pen and stopped writing, there was no voice from heaven for four centuries. So don't just read over that and say, yep, angel showed up and said something. This was monumental. The silence of heaven has been shattered. By the way, notice four times in the first two chapters this happened. Athens right here in verses 20 to 21. Look down to chapter 2 and verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Third occurrence, skip down to verse 19, chapter 2. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel and those who sought the child's Life are dead. And down to verse 22 of, verse, of chapter 2. But when he heard that uh, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. It hasn't happened for 400 years, 500 years. And now boom, 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 one after the other. God speaks through an angel. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, what does this angel say? Don't be afraid. Me phobethes. Or we get a word phobia. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't shrink back from this, Joseph. Stop being concerned about this issue. You, you can safely take her as your wife into your home. Can you imagine how comforting these words must have been to this very young, godly man? And why can he do this? Why should he not be afraid? Notice verse 20, you should not be afraid for the child has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is a virgin conception. This is of the Lord. The Lord did this. God himself placed this child there, and once again, we have this divine affirmation of the virgin birth. Incredible. And what I find so shocking is Matthew just says it, and he doesn't explain it, and he doesn't really expand on it. He doesn't give us a lot more details. He just says, she's conceived by the power of the Spirit, and he leaves it there. That is tremendous. As if that's not Look at verse 21. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. He's processing the fact that, number one, an angel is there speaking to him. Number two, that he's just been told that she's conceived a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And add to that, verse 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from 
their sins. Tremendous. He doesn't get to name his child. God names him. Jesus. His name is not Lord. That's his title. His name is not Messiah or Christ. That's his role. His name is Jesus, which is a Hebrew, a form of a Hebrew word, Joshua, which means the Lord saves, or Yahweh is salvation. His name is to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is why he came. This is his mission. This describes exactly why Christ came. And the idea, as you probably are well aware of in that day in first century Judaism, was that the Messiah would come to throw off the yoke of Rome. We want to be free from these nasty Romans. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be a military conquering hero. He's going to throw off the horrible Romans. He's going to free us from their oppression. We're going to finally get to be the people that God intended us to be. That was the common mindset of a Jew in first century Israel. Joseph finds the real reason. He's going to come and save his people from their sins. The worst calamity that could befall any single person is to have to stand in judgment before the holy God. The worst thing that will ever happen to any individual is not the loss of their health or their finances or even the death of their family and friends. That is not the most calamitous or tragic thing that could happen to anybody. The single most calamitous event that will happen to any individual who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is when they have to stand before a holy God and face his wrath, and his judgment for their sin. This is what Jesus came to rescue us from. That wrath. To rescue us, to save us from God. God's holy hatred against our sin, he came to deal with sin. What do you think Joseph thought at this moment? I'm going to be the adopted father of the Savior of the world. Tremendous. <clears throat> Number four, the clear fulfillment of prophecy. So the embarrassing circumstances of Mary, the secret plan of Joseph, the surprising announcement of the angel, we come to number four, the clear fulfillment of prophecy. And we come to this famous verse that everyone knows, Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew knows it well. And you remember what Matthew is doing. Matthew is proving to us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated. We've said that a number of times already in our study of Matthew, even the first couple of weeks, that Jesus Christ is exactly who the Old Testament promised 
And this is exactly where Matthew goes. This is the first quotation from the Old Testament, the first evidence of a fulfilled prophecy right here in verses 22 and 23. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is Matthew's point. Jesus is who the Old Testament anticipated. Five times in the first two chapters, that little phrase, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet occurs. Let me show you very quickly. First one's here in verse 22, chapter 1. Second one is in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. Go over there. Very quickly, let me show you these five occurrences of this very important little phrase. Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. They said to him in Bethlehem the prophet, for this is what had been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. That's a quote from Micah 5, verse 2. And skip down to verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 2. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Skip down to verses 16 to 18. Verse 17 says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. That's a reference to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And then come down to verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, though he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be a Nazarene. Five times in the first two chapters, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophesied. He's the completion of the prophecies. There's 12 of them mentioned in this book. Go back to chapter 1, verse 23. Here it is. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That's verse 22. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. A virgin would conceive and bear a son. You may remember a couple years ago we went through that passage. And we said that many people today reject the idea that that word virgin actually means virgin. Um, there is a word that could have been used, a different word that may have been a little more clear, the word betulah. But in Isaiah, Isaiah used the word alma, which some skeptics say could mean just a young woman and not a virgin. So they look at that and they say, well, it really has no clear statement that there would be a virgin birth, so there's really no messianic implications. Listen, Matthew makes it absolutely 100% undeniable what Isaiah thought. Because Matthew quotes in verse 23 from the Septuagint. And the word that the Septuagint uses for virgin is the word parthenos, which can only mean virgin. 
There is no ambiguity here whatsoever. Matthew ends all debates about this word means. It clearly means virgin. In fact, if Isaiah really meant a young woman would have a child, if that's truly what he meant, that's not a sign at all. Young women have babies all the time, especially here at Maranatha Bible Church. (laughs) Last count I heard was there's seven ladies pregnant how we do church growth here. (laughs) A young woman giving birth to a baby, that means nothing. A virgin giving birth to a baby, now that's something. Matthew's very clear. There's no ambiguity here whatsoever. She would give birth, a virgin would give birth to a son. And notice verse 23, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Incredible. He's got two names. Jesus, meaning Yahweh is my salvation, and Emmanuel describes what he does. It describes the event of the incarnation. It describes the fact that he came into this world, God in human flesh. And his name, Emmanuel, obviously, as you know, means God with us. In fact, if you want to summarize Christmas in three words, those are the best three words you could summarize it with. God with us. So here in one person, there are two natures. God and man. And the virgin birth makes that a reality. Number five, last, the unquestioning obedience of Joseph. The unquestioning obedience of Joseph. Here's a man who did exactly what he was told to do. Notice verses 24 and 25. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus speaks of his character. Because not only did he do what the angel told him to do, he did it knowing the public humiliation and the scandal that he himself might face marrying a woman who it would probably get around that he was not the father of the child. Man of integrity. But there was no sexual relationship between them. Verse 25 makes that very clear. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Matthew doesn't tell us why they chose to do that. Perhaps the decision was motivated by the deep awareness of who Mary was carrying in her womb. Or perhaps they chose to make that decision because they wanted to refute every allegation that Joseph was himself the father of the child, regardless They remain chaste until, verse 25 says, she gave birth to a son. Some people have, particularly those in Roman Catholicism, have believed that Mary was perpetually a virgin. And that's impossible on the basis of this verse 25. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, implying after that, They engaged in the normal physical intimacy of a husband and a wife. 
corroborated by the fact that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So there you have it. Just a few months later, Jesus, God in human flesh, entered this world. It's a remarkable account. Short, not as much in many details as Luke's account, and yet at the same time, incredibly precise in a monumental description. And so I just, let me ask you this morning, have you, have you spent any time this week just thinking about this? You got all your presents together, you got all your parties planned, you got all the food, recipes ready to go, that's fine. Have you thought at all about the fact that we have a Savior who entered our world in the most monumental way? And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, have you trusted this Christ? Have you placed your faith and trust in him? Because real faith has at its heart a complete surrender to this baby who grew to be our Savior. And if you don't know him, we would love today to be the day that you place your faith and trust in Christ. Lord, we, we thank you so much for these remarkable realities so simple, Lord. We've heard this story so many times. We are really quite familiar with these details. And yet, Lord, we confess that the story of the incarnation never gets old. We never get tired of hearing of it. We never tire of being reminded of the fact that we're great sinners, but we have a great Savior. And so, Lord, may our hearts respond this week with appropriate Worship with appropriate glory to you. We pray, Lord, that you help us to keep in the forefront of our minds the fact that what we know to be true was a part of your plan from eternity past to rescue us and save us, and we're thankful beyond measure. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.